Hello, everyone. Welcome to the sporadic and infrequent Volts podcast. Uh, we've got a fun one today. My guest today is Jesse Jenkins, an assistant professor, uh, policy researcher, energy modeler, uh, all-around energy guru at Princeton University. Uh, Jesse and I came up in the energy game right around the same time. We were both uh, heavily involved in the fights over the Waxman-Markey climate bill back in 2008 to 2010. Uh, we came at that bill and, and a lot of issues from very different perspectives back then and had our occasional clashes. And he used to work for the Breakthrough Institute, and I used to tussle with his bosses, <laughs> the bad boys, pretty frequently uh, back then. But I remember one, uh, one episode from those days always kind of sticks in my head. I think it was in 2012. Uh, Jesse wrote or co-wrote a post about the rebound effect, which is an effect in energy efficiency. The idea is you make a product or service more energy efficient. You also thereby make it cheaper, and then people will use it more or, or do it more, and you will lose some of the energy savings you got from the efficiency. So my response to this was extremely tribal. I, I wrote a short, snarky post saying, there they go, the Breakthrough Institute, delayers and deniers out there crapping on everything that's not energy research again, you know, their team's bad, rah, rah, our team. And Jesse got in touch, and I remember he wasn't uh, he wasn't angry. And if and if the attack had bruised his ego anyway, I certainly couldn't tell. the The attitude was just, "No, man, there's a thing here. Like it's an actual thing. Look at the thing, and like read the PDFs." <laughs> and sent me a bunch of PDFs, and so I was like, "Well, I guess I could do that." So I read the PDFs, and then read a bunch more PDFs, and got sucked down a giant rabbit hole. And ended up writing a three a long three part blog series on the rebound effect in 2012, and that episode reinforced two key early lessons I learned in this job. One is that the truth of a thing is almost always more complicated and more interesting than any ideological take on that thing. And two, while energy, like any human endeavor is filled with people grinding axes and narrow-mindedly defending their rigid perspectives, there are out there a few people who really just want to figure it out, who really just want to get to the bottom of it and get as close to the truth of the thing as possible. As a journalist, those people become your touchstones and your sounding boards. I could tell early on that Jesse was one of those people. So, We've kept in touch over the years as he worked his way up from blogger to PhD researcher at MIT to assistant professor at Princeton University, and I worked my way up from blogger to still blogger. Recently, Jesse has been involved in Princeton's Net Zero America project, a set of energy economic models showing various pathways for the U.S. to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. It is one of a recent flood of similar models charting a course to decarbonization. And it is energy modeling that we are here to discuss today. What are these models exactly? How do they get made? 
And what are we, ordinary civilians who are not energy modelers, to make of them? What are we to do with them? How should we interpret them? What should we learn from them? And so to talk that over, we have with us uh, none other than Professor Jenkins himself. Jesse, welcome to Volts. Thanks, Dave. We've uh, we've gone a long way back together, don't we? Uh, it's great to be here and chat with you. The long story. Yeah. So before we before we uh, jump into the modeling, how about we get a little just uh, Jesse history? Maybe you could let us know how you started, how you got into energy, and kind of what you learned in those early years that guided you toward the academic course and specifically the energy modeling course. Yeah, it's been a fairly meandering journey along the way, as these things often are. I guess it goes back primarily to my undergraduate days at the University of Oregon, where I was an undergraduate in majoring in computer science and philosophy. Um, ah, nice and uh, and uh, <laughs> philosophy to keep me from getting too bored in the computer science classes <laughs> and computer science to uh, try to get a job making <laughs> widgets for somebody when I got out of undergrad. And I, you know, I enjoyed the the abstract realm of you know software development and programming, and it was you know an interesting pursuit. But somewhere along the way, I was in the honors college program there, and they require you to take these sort of small liberal arts style colloquium courses um, in addition to your your major you know course of study. And I ended up taking a class that fulfilled my science obligation. <laughs> that was a a course on the environmental impact or environmental footprint of energy systems. Mm-hmm. And it was taught by a professor of astrophysics uh, who styles himself dark, Dr. Dark Matter, uh, <laughs> named Gregory Bothan, uh, who you know had this great sort of mad scientist-style persona and was a really engaging and, and effective educator and professor. Uh, and he taught this course that just opened my eyes to a huge set of really interesting and hairy and interconnected uh, and important problems and challenges around uh, you know, the current environmental impacts of air pollution and, and, uh, and waste from our energy system, the uh, potential for resource depletion, which in the early aughts was the major concern. You know, peak oil was the, the hot yeah. topic. Uh, and also this you know, critical thing called climate change, which was you know, mounting in importance and becoming more and more apparent even in the early 2000s. And so this is about halfway through my junior year. And after taking that course, I, you know, I, I was just fascinated with these topics and started to try to learn as much as I could about them. It's actually when I started my first blog in 2005, uh, mm. wathead.blogspot.com, oh, <laughs> uh, which was actually just my exercise to try to help my friends who were also remote, you know, somewhat slightly interested in these topics by you know, kind of explaining what I was learning as I was learning. So I was by no means an me- expert on anything, but I was like, well, if... I learned something interesting and I found it interesting. Maybe I could try to explain it to somebody else and maybe two or three people will find that interesting too. So maybe I'll write a blog about it. And, uh, and that was sort of the start of the journey, I guess. And I, I ended up doing an internship the following summer at Xerox, you know, helping write like driver code for you know, ink printers. And it was just, you know, like Dilbert Worlds, no offense to the fine folks that I got to work with there. And I just, you know, it was like, this is not what I want to be doing. And so I spent most of my time there just learning as much as I could about energy and energy solutions. Um, and after that, I came back and decided to devote my senior thesis to exploring uh, alternative vehicle technologies and fuels and got my first experience with modeling, with trying to understand the sort of complicated fuels, supply chains, and alternatives that, you know, ethanol and cellulosic ethanol and electric vehicles and fuel cells and hydrogen and all the different ways in which we could produce 
uh, fuels for our vehicles and how different vehicle technologies would use those and, and trying to understand the full, what was known as well-to-wheels environmental and energy impact of those different choices. Um, and then it'd be my senior thesis and I got my kind of first taste of how these systems are quite complex and we often need some kind of computer models to help us understand, well, if I pull and push on this little piece of the puzzle, what's going to happen elsewhere in the system? And is it, you know, is it really lower emissions if I switch my vehicle to using electricity where there's no tailpipe emissions, but somewhere else in, you know, the power grid, there's a coal right. plant turning on and, you know, producing, uh, producing CO2 emissions and pollutants. Like what's really better after all? And that was my kind of first experience with, with modeling. I I quickly decided after that that I wasn't really much of an engineer, like that wasn't my my thing, and so I probably wasn't going to go and develop some kind of new technological solution. But I and I got the sense, you know, from that initial foray, that there were quite a few solutions that were out there, and people, you know, smart people were working on whiz bang technologies. And what was needed was policy to help push them forward. Mm. And I thought maybe I can make an impact there. You know, I was a debater. I can make a cogent argument if needed. So maybe I could, you know read a lot and, and engage with policymakers and try to make a, a difference as an advocate. And so I went to work for a group in, in Oregon called the Renewable Northwest, where I helped work on the state's renewable portfolio standard, which was enacted in 2007. And I got to kind of see the whole process of stakeholder negotiation and legislative battle and implementation of regulations at the Utility Commission at the other end over the course of a couple of years, which just serves as a, re- as a really excellent introduction to that whole Messy and important world of policymaking, and I and we we won. We kind of won everything that year. And yeah. at the end of it, I was like, "Wow, I just helped make this thing like a law <laughs> that is now going to be there." And by 2025, we're going to get 25 percent of our electricity in the state from clean electricity sources. What what can I do next? And so <laughs> I tilted at windmills in Washington D.C. for a while at the Breakthrough Institute and uh, helped run their energy and climate program for a while. And in that role, just sort of played a, what I kind of felt was a synthesis role, you know, helping as you, know, you mentioned the, the rebound lit review and paper on the rebound effect. I mean, I was just starting to read these academic papers and try to make sense of them and then condense them and you know, pass them along into the, the policy world. But in that role, I, I couldn't really answer original questions myself. I had to wait for some academic to do it for me and then find a paper and synthesize it. And I didn't really have the formal training in how to answer those questions and do that research myself. And I ultimately decided that if I was going to stay in this career, which I kind of stumbled into uh, for the long term, that I needed to go uh, get a graduate degree and understand uh, actually how to do this research and uh, develop a toolkit of, of skills that I could use to answer original and, and complicated questions about energy systems myself and, and then help you know, continue to translate those findings into the policy world, but hopefully findings from my own research rather than uh, just waiting for someone else to answer the question. Well, at least from my perspective at a distance, your your rise through graduate school up to professorship seemed incredibly rapid and and smooth. I, I doubt it felt that way from the inside, but <laughs> yeah, it was, but, uh, it was plenty of work. But yeah, I mean, I, I I found myself really loving the academic world where you could engage in those questions. I mean, I think you describe me as somebody who just wants to kind of get to the bottom of it and understand these systems and try to help other people understand them. And there's few better places to do that than in academia, where you actually have the freedom to answer unanswered questions and spend the time on it and, you know, work with incredibly smart people, especially now that I'm a professor here, I have the potential that, you know, the benefit of working with a team of, you know, incredibly bright People who, of course, now do all the real work, and I just get to talk about it on Twitter. <laughs> Sweet, uh, you yeah. get to co-write papers that you yep. sign at the end. Nice, <laughs> the mountaintop. Yeah. Well, 
let's let's talk about what you're doing then, energy modeling. I think um, you know, if it's kind of from the civilian point of view, the sort of average engaged reader point of view, we see these models come out all the time, you know, like X X Foundation ran modeling showing that we can decarbon decarbonize the US for, you know, X dollars. And then some other model will come out and say, actually you can do it for Y dollars and you need more of this technology or that technology. And I and I think for most people are like me, which is that, you know, in the slightly frustrating position of just sort of having to accept these things that show up. So let's try to demystify them a little bit. And maybe you could just tell us like what what is energy modeling? What are you doing when you do energy modeling? And where where does the data come from? And what sort of questions are you trying to answer? Yeah, that's a great question. So a model is, you know, really just an abstract representation of reality somehow, right? I mean, it's similar to an actual like model airplane or model, mm-hmm. you know, Empire State Building, right? Where it, it has a relationship to the real world thing, uh, but it's a simplified version of that that we can kind of get our hands around and, and play with a little bit. Another way to think about it is like a map, right? A map mm-hmm. is a model of the real world and it helps you understand how to get from point A to point B. But it is by no means as detailed as the real world, right? It has to abstract all right. kinds of things in order to fit it on a page and you know allow you to actually make some visual sense of it. And uh, it, but it tries to maintain the the most important pieces that you need to navigate, right? Mm-hmm. It's giving you a sense of where the roads are and maybe some key landmarks or topographical features and points of interest and things like that. And and so what energy system models are are generally pieces of software. They're they're computer code or sometimes you know just a lot of formulas in an Excel spreadsheet or something like that that capture hopefully the key relationships between different components of your energy system, whether it's a power grid or um, the well to wheels you know path of fuels from oil well to refinery to. Uh, gas station to your, you know, internal combustion engine vehicle or, you know, whatever other pathway and tries to to retain the most important features and relationships between those features and then abstract away as much as possible so that we can make these things simpler and something that we can use to make sense of these incredibly complex real world systems. And from, you know, from the perspective of people outside the energy modeling world, are there heuristics we can use to sort of um figure out which models are worthwhile and which aren't? Is there any way for people outside to sort of discern the quality of a model or which ones to listen to? Because they do, you know, I I think the (laughs) sort of the default tendency is you just kind of pick the model that's telling you what you want to (laughs) hear. But but is there any any way for normal people to be able to sort of critically assess these models? Yeah, I mean, obviously, my model is the best model yeah, and the right of course. one. Uh, yeah, and that's, that's what you'll get all the time. Yeah, no, I, I mean, the reality is it's actually very, very difficult. And that's an area in which uh, some of us in the academic space and elsewhere in the national labs and other organizations have been really trying to put a greater emphasis on open source models with mm. open source data. Because much of the, you know, much of the modeling world is just a black box, right? I mean, it's literally just a piece of executable software that you have no idea really how it's working. Mm. And it's it's basically a complicated calculator, right? You put some numbers in the front end, it goes beep, bop, beep, boop, and then it spits <laughs> out on the other end some other numbers. And 
you know, you can sort of say, well, I trust the company that made it, or I trust the researcher who's doing it, or it's telling me something that confirms my priors, so I trust <laughs> it. Um, but you have no idea how it really works. And even other academics and experts that do modeling for a living don't necessarily know how it works. So they're as opaque to one another as they are to us outside? Yeah, I mean, we can make guesses about how they behave and how we, you know, like the tools and tricks that we know have to be used to make these models functional to sort of say, well, I, I'm guessing that this model does this and this model does that and makes this trick. But every model is an abstraction, right? It's always making, you have to make simplifications because just like the map, you can't carry around like a full-scale topographical right. relief image of the world or it would be the size of the world. <laughs> so, right? there's no, so there's no yeah. ob obligation or professional sort of norm that you kind of make it transparent, publish like what you did, so, how it works? Yeah, so in academia, you if you want to publish papers, what you typically are required to do is to publish a description of the algebraic representation of the model. So all the formulas that describe the relationships between you know, a natural gas power mm. plant's generation and then how much fuel it uses right. and then the supply of that fuel mm. and the constraints that limit that fuel to be no more, you know, the fuel supply to be no more than what the wells can produce and, you know, the consumption to be no more than what the capacity of the power plant is or these sorts of algebraic formulas that describe constraints and relationships, uh, you know, and costs basically or values. Uh, and, and you can describe that in a, in a mathematical formulation that is not the code or the software itself. Mm. So you couldn't re you couldn't recreate the model from. I mean, from the that. idea is that someone with enough time and energy could, and that's often <laughs> how we get started when we build these models in academia. Is we go look at other papers and we say, oh, well, mm. this is the standard way in which you write this formula, and then I'm going to write that formula in my software code and, and start from there. So there is you can often reproduce them, but only with significant time and effort. And and even if you describe fully all of the algebraic language. There are always little software implementation details that are under the hood that can sometimes, you know, are bugs even that, you know, aren't detected that sometimes uh, can affect the way the model operates. And so only really if the code itself is transparent and uh, in particular, if someone else can run the model and, and, you know, play with it and say, well, what happens if I change this value or that value? What, what happens? Uh, can we really get a more, you know, in-depth in understanding of the tools and, and how they work? And, and one of the challenges as well is that it's difficult to, uh, when you see all these different studies, it's very difficult to isolate how much of the difference in outcomes is due to differences in assumptions that the modelers mm -hmm. are making. So different numbers that go in the front end and how much of it is due to different structural decisions about how to create the model and how the model relates those numbers to one another. Uh, so, and so you so can't you, even necessarily isolate those two things. Yeah. Right. You can't even necessarily put two models next to each other and kind of figure out exactly where they where they disagree they just you're just sort of like the conclusions you have the conclusions to work with yeah ex exactly and you can compare the inputs and say well clearly use different inputs than i did but sometimes you don't know like well right. is that is that a di salient difference does that make any difference in the outcomes or not right. and and maybe it does make a difference in your model but not in mine because my model is different and you know we don't really know that until we really can compare them so that's leading to efforts to create more open source and collaborative modeling platforms that um as well as open data platforms, including one called the Power Genome Project that I've helped support and, and fundraise for, and that's been led by uh, Dr. Greg Shively, who is building out the project, uh, that is designed to create a common data set and a set of tools to make that data easy to compile and, and set up as input for particular models. So that hopefully we can all, you know, not all, but it'll make it easier for many researchers to use the same data. 
And then we can isolate that variable and say, all right, mm. we're all using the same data. Let's run it through three or four different models and right. see how they compare. And then we can start to really look under the hood at the open source code and say, well, well, what is it about these different models that makes them perform differently? Right. Uh, and that's a, you know, it's, it's a time intensive effort. It's something that like not the average Joe can do, but people who um, are in the modeling world can do. And that will help us as a field really understand, you know, which differences in implementation are important and make big differences in outcomes and which ones maybe aren't so important. And that'll help, I think, hopefully help create a, a better rubric for understanding which models are fit for what purpose. Because you can never have a model that does everything well. Right. It's going to be specialized to do certain things um, well. And some models are good for certain applications and questions and total junk for answering other questions. And, and you, know, right. you have to know what tool you need to answer the questions that you're trying to answer. So I have a, a billion questions about how modelers sort of incorporate incorporate various things or think about various things. But, but uh, uh, one questioner on Twitter brought up what I thought was a really... A really good question, which we should start with, which is, as much as these different energy models crank out different results, uh, and, and we tend to focus on the different results, we tend to focus on the disagreements when we're, especially in the energy field, you know, it's the sort of the disagreements that are the interesting part. But the fact is that most of these models, there is a large chunk of agreement. There's a large sort of base of things they agree on. So maybe just tell us, like, what do we know based on modeling about decarbonization with high confidence? Like, what, what is something that the models agree on? So I think we're starting to see pretty clear agreement uh, in the last few years, and this is a, a change from maybe 10 years ago, that, uh, that pretty rapid and deep decarbonization of energy systems is affordable broadly speaking. Mm. Right? It's not something that is going to bankrupt the economy or take a World War II-style devotion of you know 25% of our GDP or something right. to, to build out a clean energy economy. Uh, and that consensus has emerged largely because over the last decade, uh, we've had a lot of success as a human endeavor in making clean energy cheap. We've made wind and mm. solar power dramatically cheaper than they were a decade ago and you know two decades before that. Uh, you know, the cost of solar is about one-tenth of what it was a decade ago. And the cost of wind is about 70% less than it was a decade ago. And we've seen similar levels of cost declines for electric vehicle batteries or you know, lithium-ion mm -hmm. batteries, which are the main cost component of electric vehicles and um, now used increasingly for uh, electricity storage on the on the power grid, where you know battery pack costs have come down by about eighty five or ninety percent as well in the last ten years, and that's due to proactive public policy support. You know that took these technologies when they were expensive alternative technologies and created niche markets for them in different parts of the world at different times, and through that process drove down their cost by spurring incremental innovations and economies of scale and learning by doing and inducing more research and development and all those processes that happen when you keep deploying more and more of the technology. Uh, and that has made them really cheap. And as a result, we now have you know, not the entire toolkit we need to get to net zero or deep decarbonization, but a big chunk of that toolkit. And we can now have much more confidence that we can move forward uh, cost-effectively and use a lot more of those technologies. So more wind and solar, you know, the, the precise degree is still open, but a lot more than we use today. A lot more electrification of vehicles and buildings, you know, heating and buildings and things like that. Again, the precise degree is open, but a lot more than today. And so that's starting to create, I think, some high degree of confidence that we uh, have the tools we need to make rapid and affordable progress in the near term. And that will buy us, hopefully, time if we're proactive 
to keep building out the rest of the tools we need uh, to get all the way to net zero. So the next kind of five to 10 years is starting to come into clearer focus. And there is still you know, remaining uncertainty about the longer term path. But I think we can have a bit more confidence that you know, wind and solar and batteries will keep getting cheaper and that's you know, good. And that if we use the next decade or so to make a whole range of other technologies cheaper as well, that we'll, we'll probably have a, you know, a pretty robust set of tools needed to get to net zero. Right. So maybe the way to put it is the next 10 years is two things. One is massive, massive deployment of renewables and batteries, clean electrification, uh, as I put it. And then the other thing is getting ready for the 10 years after that. Is that, yep. is that uh, fair? Yeah, I think that's about right. And the other, I guess the other smaller piece of it, which is important, and have you written on this as well, is let's not throw away the infrastructure we currently have, in particular, the carbon-free electricity from right. existing nuclear power plants, which give us a foundation to make progress on instead of having to replace them at the same time we're also trying to get rid of all of the coal and you know right. start using less natural gas. And so that's also a pretty robust finding in, in modeling is that you know wherever you can safely continue to operate nuclear power plants, it would make sense to do that if you're trying to make affordable and rapid progress on uh, decarbonization. And that shows up in study after study as well. Right. So the, you know, you mentioned the, the, the sort of limits of, of wind and solar and batteries. And this is, I think, to my mind, kind of the central issue, the central argument, the sort of central thing that everyone in this field is struggling with, which is that it's very clear that wind and solar are super cheap. And it's very clear that wind and solar are going to be the bulk uh, of, of clean energy in the future. But as you say, the question of how far you can get with wind and solar is the big question. Since wind and solar are variable, they come and go with the weather, they're not dispatchable, you can't turn them on and off. Uh, so the question is how to build a grid around uh, variable resources. And to do that, you need, um, as, as a way of adding sort of balance and flexibility to that kind of grid, you need what you call firm resources. And so kind of the big question, I think, in, in energy modeling in terms of, of policy relevance is just um, how far is RE going to get and what are the firm resources, like how much firm, firm resources do you need, how soon, and what are they going to be? So maybe just say a little bit, just to begin with, what firm means as like, what's it, what's it, what's it meant to contrast with? And then sort of maybe a quick review of like what technologies fall under that, under that rubric and which you think will be kind of the key, the key players. Yeah, so by firm, uh, I mean technologies that are available when you need them for as long as you need them. Uh, there's varying degrees of firmness, so it's not like a, you have it or you don't. It's more of a continuum. But there are technologies that are more dependable that you can turn on when you need them and that don't have constraints that are, you know, aren't based on the weather and aren't limited in their energy supplies and so can keep cranking out energy as long as you need them to maintain uh, reliability. And today we rely overwhelmingly on fossil fuel power plants for that role, we coal and natural gas power plants with a contribution from nuclear power in, in you know, different regions as well. Uh, in the US, we have about 950 gigawatts or so of firm capacity from those sources. About 100 of that is nuclear and the rest is gas and coal. And in a low carbon world, we have to replace all of that coal and natural gas with something that emits either no or very low carbon dioxide emissions. 
and so there's a set of you know alternative resources that could be for, you know that could play that firm role in the future. Uh, you know, more nuclear power, either conventional or advanced reactors, advanced geothermal technologies, um, uh, natural gas or biomass power plants, power plants, the power plants that burn or gasify uh, bioenergy feedstocks like uh, wood pellets or or corn stover or other other material, uh, and capture the CO two emissions associated with that, mm-hmm. um, or uh, technologies that either that burn zero carbon fuels of some sort, whether that's hydrogen or synthetic methane that's made from hydrogen and carbon neutral sources of CO two, uh, or just you know very low amounts of of natural gas that's offset by some negative emissions elsewhere. I guess is another kind of backup option, uh, but some kind of fuel that we can we can burn without directly emitting CO two, and therefore we don't have to capture it. So those are kind of our main options: zero emissions fuels like uh, geothermal and or zero emissions technologies like geothermal and nuclear, you know, fuel burning technologies that can capture their carbon emissions or fuel burning technologies that don't emit CO2 like hydrogen. So I notice you leave storage out of that. Where does storage fit in the firmness? Uh, yeah, so storage picture. Yeah, so storage, especially battery storage and the technologies, you know, like lithium ion that we're using largely today fill a different niche in the market. I I, I liken I, so I I describe basically three key building blocks or roles on the clean energy team. That we need, and and wind and solar, and you know, run over hydro plants, and anything else that's dependent on the weather like that, is one role. And that role I, I describe as a fuel saving role because they have no fuel costs, mm-hmm. but and they're really cheap, but they're variable. And so when they're there, we use as much of them as we can, and that displaces other more expensive technologies like natural gas or bioenergy in the future, or, you know, hydrogen in the future, and saves the costs associated with using those more expensive fuels. And so that's how they deliver their value, not by being there all the time, but by be, when they're there being the cheapest thing we can use to get right. our electricity, especially without carbon. Uh, and then the firm role is the other kind of role. And we have a lot of that in our system today. And we have to make it clean firm and not fossil firm that emits CO2. And then the third role I call fast burst technologies or balancing resources. And that's where batteries fit, as well as demand flexibility and demand response. So, you know, shifting when we consume electricity or how much we consume. And all of those technologies are great for short, you know, short bursts of output or flexibility, but not sustained over long periods of time. Because, you know, you might wait to charge your electric vehicle for a few hours in the middle of the night until the prices of electricity are low, but you're probably not going to wait to charge it for three days. Right. And your battery can provide a lot of flexibility on the order of a few hours, you know, to shift the solar output, you know, to, from 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. or something. But after a few hours, you're going to run out of gas in the tank or, you know, electricity in the battery. Uh, and so those are all really good for kind of intraday or hourly timescales, uh, but not for long sustained periods of time. And there are long sustained periods of time when wind and solar output are pretty low. Um, right. and, so, and you need firm resources to to step in and play a, a critical role at those times, and batteries don't really fit that fit the bill for that. Right, but in but in but in theory, you have at least in theory you have a range of storage technologies where batteries are sort of, especially lithium ion batteries, are sort of on the shorter end of that scale, yeah. the short burst. There are in theory. Um, bigger, higher capacity, more stable forms of storage. I mean, there's there's pumped hydro. Now, is that? Do you just consider that 
more firm or <laughs> where does that fall in your Yeah, topology? I mean, again, it's, a, it's sort of a spectrum, but most, even pumped hydro facilities are mostly sized for diurnal cycles. So they are built mm. to store, you know, eight to 24 hours of energy and move them from nighttime to daytime usually. They originally are mostly built to take nuclear power or coal power plant output at night and shift it into the daytime. Right. And so there, you know, there's, there is, that is another option. It, it actually tends to be more expensive in most cases, unless you already have one of the reservoirs mm-hmm. there to, to do that than to do batteries now because they're so cheap. Uh, there are a few exceptions, like there's a giant pumped hydro facility that's, going, that's being built in Australia called the Snowy 2.0 project that is huge and could play a very long duration role. And there are reservoir hydro systems like in Norway and Quebec that have months worth of you know, storage capacity that can play that role. But for the most part, the energy storage technologies we have now are actually just too expensive, even if you could build a giant battery, mm-hmm. uh, are just too expensive per kilowatt hour of energy capacity they can store uh, to be cost-effective using them only occasionally for those long duration periods. And so what we actually have a paper coming out uh, in, in Nature Energy very shortly that takes a very exhaustive look, and this is, we can talk about how you use computer models for this, uh, to explore a huge range of potential long-duration storage technologies and the mm. costs and performance characteristics that they all might have. And what we conclude is that you have to be really cheap, like a few dollars a kilowatt hour of energy storage versus a couple hundred dollars per kilowatt hour for batteries, so like two orders of magnitude cheaper wow. in order to play that role. And even then, it partially replaces the firm resources, so it's more firm than a battery. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't obviate the need for a lot of firm generation uh, entirely, unless you assume right. the batteries are almost right. free. So if I could just summarize then, you've got your big bulk variable sources, which leave gaps. You can fill hour-to-hour, maybe day-to-day gaps with energy storage, mm-hmm. but you are going to have days, weeks, possibly even months or seasonal gaps of low wind and solar. And for that gap, you need firm resources. And there's not much prospect of storage scaling up or getting cheap enough to fully cover that gap. So That's right. Or at least it's probably less plausible that that will happen than that we'll develop one or several firm technologies that are more competitive. Right, right, right. right. I mean, the thing is fuel... Fuel is a long-duration energy storage technology, right. right? I mean, like chemical fuel is long-duration storage. And so you have to get cheaper than you know, a natural gas power plant with carbon capture or a hydrogen power plant or fuel cell, you know, where the hydrogen is produced at much larger scale for this other fuel sector that's out there that you know, we need for decarbonizing industry and, and heating and, you know, and other applications that then you can just buy, buy fuel out of like we do natural gas today. And that's sort of the technology to beat for long-duration storage. And and I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, but I'm curious, do you see, how much prospect do you see for hydrogen-derived fuels? These are, you know, very hyped now. You can sort of pull hydrogen out of water with using renewable energy and then mix your hydrogen with any of a variety of hydrocarbons and, and create basically liquid fuels that you can drop in and substitute for fossil liquid fuels. And those would qualify, as you say, as long-term uh, energy storage and could theoretically fill the firm resources gap. It, it, is it even in the universe of possibility that that's going to get cheap enough anytime soon to outcompete, say, I don't know, geothermal or nuclear or, or natural gas with CCS? 
Yeah, the in the power sector, it's much less likely that we'll need to make synthetic hydrocarbons because we can just burn hydrogen directly as a fuel. And right. so adding a, taking additional energy to turn the hydrogen and some CO2 you got from the atmosphere or from biomass into uh, synthetic methane or something is just sort of extra cost. There is right. some potentially some infrastructure savings because you could use the existing natural gas right, right. pipelines then, and you can't do that with hydrogen. You can blend only a certain amount. But you know, other than that, and that you know, there's some ongoing research about how much of that is worthwhile. But you know, you use a lot of extra energy and capital equipment to turn it into methane and then burn it when you could just burn the hydrogen directly. Uh, but outside of the electricity sector, where we really do need you know gaseous fuels that come via pipeline, or we need liquid energy dense fuels for jet fuel or diesel, for example, then we may need to uh, either make synthetic fuel or uh, take biomass and use it to produce hydrogen and take the CO2 that was in the biomass that was originally absorbed from the atmosphere by plant growth and sequester that CO2 underground. So that takes CO2 out of the atmosphere. And that negative emissions process can offset the continued use of fossil fuels for hydrocarbon fuels to some degree. And that's what we see in a lot of modeling as actually much more cost-effective than producing large volumes of synthetic fuel to fully displace fossil fuels. Right. So all of this comes out of these energy models, right? I mean, these are not easy, intuitive things to understand without running a model that lets you understand the, you know, the interactions between these technologies. And the reason I say some of this with confidence is that we've run a lot of modeling, you know, not a single model with a single set of assumptions, but many, many different uh, scenarios, uh, you know, basically trying to invalidate the kinds of things that I'm talking about. Like, do it as an experiment where you say, I think this is true, or I've seen this is true in previous studies. Now, what does it take to break it? How do how, you know what assumptions do I have to? Well, let me ask. Uh, let me ask about one example of just yeah. that kind of work, then. So, because one of the one of the things people raise as sort of an alternative to firm resources, or or at least to reduce the need for firm resources, is overbuilding of mm-hmm. of renewables. This is sort of uh, a subject of much hype lately, and and the idea here is that renewables are just so cheap that you just build way, way more of them <laughs> than you need. And when you have excess power, which you will, you know, if you overbuild, which you will have on a daily, literally a daily basis, um, you just use that excess power to make hydrogen or something like that. Or, or, or you know, you align your solar panels so they're maybe not producing as much, but they're producing later. You can just be sort of profligate with your renewable energy. Or you just such, waste it. Yeah, you uh, just waste it when you don't need it. Or, or yeah, or just curtail it. Um, how much can overbuilding do relative to firm resources? Yeah, so that's exactly the kinds of questions that we throw into our models. So the the I published a paper with Nestor Sepulveda and others at MIT in 2018 on this role of firm low-carbon resources. And the reason that it, I think, has been you know, a pretty influential paper and one that has stood more of the test of time than others is that we weren't trying to say, how much firm do you need in California? Or how much firm do you need in Europe in 2040? Which are much more difficult questions mm-hmm. to answer in, um, with confidence. Instead, we were trying to say, across a wide range of future conditions and assumptions, do you need firm capacity at scale? And by need, we meant does that does it substantially reduce the cost of a zero carbon or close to zero carbon electricity system? Right. And so instead of just running a single case, we ran dozens that included, you know, extremely expensive firm resources like today's nuclear power costs and you know, no carbon capture and you know, really expensive biogas uh, with really cheap renewables. 
and really cheap future nuclear costs or gas with, you know, alum cycle gas plants and, you know, abundant biofuels with moderate cost renewables and all these different combinations. And, and then let's let the model in two different, you know, climate zones. So what happens in a northern climate mm-hmm. region versus a southern climate region? And what happens if we interconnect regions over long distances? And what happens if there's more or less flexible demand? And, you know, all of these sorts of assumptions, you can ask these what if questions with the model. And, and if you approach modeling kind of experimentally, the same way you would you know, approach like a, a biology experiment and say, well, what happens if I add this thing to the, you know, to the environment? What happens? Uh, you can then see how your models react and what happens and, and try to develop robust conclusions about not the exact quantity of any given technology that we need, but their relative roles right. in the overall system. And what we found was that, yeah, you get a lot of overbuilding, right? I mean, wind and solar are cheap enough that it actually makes sense to curtail a good amount of it when you know in order to when in times when you have an abundance uh in order to have enough at times when wind and solar output are smaller right and then you use a lot of batteries to to fill in the gaps too especially if batteries are cheap but there's a limit to how far that can take you and exactly the question we were trying to answer was basically how far can you go with wind right. solar and batteries because they're the technologies that we know we have right so mm-hmm. you know, can we get 80% of the way there or 100% of the way like you know or what else do we need and so we set up the experiments as a with and without question, right? So if we just have wind, solar, and batteries, and we have to rely on natural gas plants, and we constrain the emissions down towards zero, what happens in that scenario? Versus a scenario where we introduce uh, one or more firm technologies under a range of different assumptions about their relative cost. And what we found is across all of those scenarios, you can get to zero emissions by just overbuilding wind and solar and batteries. But the costs start to rise very rapidly as you get closer and closer to zero emissions because what you need is a little more energy in just those few hours when wind and solar output is really low. Like say you only have you know, 10% of the output of your right. aggregate fleet. And so if I want to get one more megawatt that hour, I have to build 10 megawatts of capacity. And, the co- and then I have to build batteries to store some extra in another hour and bring it to this period. And, right. and I'm wasting most of the output of that wind and solar because... I built those 10 more megawatts to get one more at that time. But when the wind and solar are really ripping, I get 10 more and I can't use it. So it's just waste on the other end. Right. So, you know, these sort of the, this, as you get closer and closer to the limit, the costs start to rise like a hockey stick. Mm. And, and if you include just one firm generation technology, that doesn't happen. The costs drop by between 10 and 65% across all of the dozens of scenarios that we ran. And that included, you know, assuming that you can move load around flexibly for 24 hours, you know, for free, or that you can connect different resources across, you know, long distances and all kinds of other, you know, uh, robustness checks that we did to make sure that that finding held. The one thing we didn't check was long duration energy storage. We did do a little bit of initial sensitivities on that and found that it didn't make a big difference. And so that sparked the whole next paper, which is the one that's about to come out now, which is, well, what if we had really cheap long duration energy storage? Would that invalidate our finding from the previous study? Would that change our hypothesis? And you and looked at you looked at transmission. You looked at transmission too, right? I, I have to. We I'm, did, yeah. We looked at uh, in a larger limited way in that study, um, uh, where we just connected the two northern southern regions for free with enough right. power to move, you know, twenty percent of their capacity back and forth. And all those things help, like they help close the gap a little bit, but they don't really change the fundamental step change in cost that happens when you have the firm resources in the mix. And so what that told us was, you know, there, there, are, there are different roles here. And you can try to make a technology like wind and solar play a different role that it's not well-suited to, but it's going to struggle to do that. 
And if you have one technology that plays its correct role in the team and in the system, and another technology that plays its role, and another technology that plays its role, then you have a much more effective uh, and more cost-effective system overall that you know just makes better use of all of the pieces. Um, so I kind of I use an analogy in a lot of my uh, a lot of my public seminars that it's a little bit like trying to play basketball with only point guards. Right? You can have <laughs> right. five point guards on the court, and like they'll dribble like crazy, and they'll be great, but they'll probably even score some points. But right. they're not going to probably win the championship, right? Against a team that has all the right star players playing the role that they were meant to play on the court, and that's kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah, sure, you can do it with wind and solar and batteries, but at what cost? And wouldn't it be a lot easier if you also had a power forward and a, you know shooting right, guard on the team right. too? So, one one intuition that comes in here that I'd, I'd love to hear you address is. Um, People who have watched energy modeling over the years, you know, there's this famous sort of uh, international energy agency graph <laughs> that that circulates that shows yeah. IEA's predictions for the cost of solar power year over year over year, and they just get it wrong, super wrong, super wrong, super wrong. It's lower than they project by quite a bit every single time. And it's like just lately they're getting like the line, the disjunct is shrinking slightly, but they're still, as far as we can tell, getting it wrong every year. And and it's sort of the the intuition I think a lot of people have is whatever these energy modelers are doing regarding the cost of renewable energy is repeatedly underestimating the cost drops of renewable energy. And so doesn't it stand to reason? Isn't it common sense to say, if we've seen this pattern hold you know, for decades now, it's probably true that current models are s- still underestimating the cost drops of renewable energy, and it will, in fact, get cheaper faster than they think again, and thus the amount it can accomplish will grow again in the next round of models. So, I'm sure you've heard this before, <laughs> this intuition before. How do you think about that? How do you try to guard against that when you're modeling? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a really uh, important important observation to make about the performance of modeling in the past and how to address it going forward. I mean the other thing that models just get really wrong all the time is estimates of fossil energy costs, right? Natural mm-hmm. gas and oil prices. So there's another in, great in, graph in the other that, direction. You mean they they, they well are. both directions, right? I mean it, lately it's been that you know models were overestimating natural gas prices for a long time. Mm. Because you know we kept sort of expecting this reversion to the mean of right, previous right. you know before shale gas type prices, and it just doesn't happen because there's innovation going on in that sector too, just like there was in the solar sector and the battery sector, and you know the productivity of shale gas extraction has gone through the roof, and yeah. you know and they can drill way more wells from the same well pad with you know in a shorter amount of time with less water, et cetera, and so you know there's just innovations happening all over the place that are often hard to anticipate, um, and so you know what. What models, when models are used well, they're not used for prediction, right? I mean, that's the right? we're going to get to that more yeah, squarely later on. They're used for exploration and understanding and insight, not prediction. And so when the IEA or the EIA uh, put out their like reference scenario and it's treated as a prediction, you know it's going to be wrong. Because you know they don't have a crystal ball any more than anybody else does, and a bunch, even if their model is a perfect representation of the world, which it isn't. I mean, there's simplifications there too everywhere. If they get the inputs wrong, then the model is going to tell them the wrong outputs, right? And if they guess high or low for different things, it'll tell them you know the wrong outcome. And so what we talk about in the modeling world is is two types of key uncertainties. There's parametric uncertainty, 
which is uncertainty about your input parameters, what the future state of the world that you're trying to model is going to be. And no one knows that, right? I mean, we we have guesses and we all have subjective assumptions about how probable certain things are. Yeah, and it's, worth, not... it's worth just just pointing out here, just for the listener's benefit, this, the uncertainty about inputs is not just about energy inputs either too, no. right? Like demographic, population, yep. size like, matters, tr- economic patterns, growth. Like what happens when yeah. autonomous vehicles pop into the market? Like and every, Everything, do, like, basically. <laughs> yeah, everything. I mean, you're, when you're trying to predict the future, it's hard, right? I mean, so like it, there's a difference between modeling, uh, and I think this is important. When it comes to energy modeling, there's a difference between what we do in the energy modeling world, particularly when we're modeling futures, like energy system planning and future worlds. It's very different than modeling uh, near-term operations of a system with a stable state and right. you know rules of physics and current market structures and policies right. that we can capture with certainty. It's a little bit like the difference between modeling, you know, sort of the, the physical realities of objects colliding in space. Right? We can we know how to do that. Like those rules don't change. Right. But the rules of the energy system change. Right? Costs change. Policies change. People change. The climate changes. And so the system that we're modeling itself is uncertain. And that introduces this parametric uncertainty. So that again, even if we had a perfect model of the world, it would be uncertain because we don't know what the future world we're modeling even looks like. And then the second piece of uncertainty is that, as I mentioned before, these are all abstractions. They're not perfect models of the world. Mm -hmm. And we have to make choices and shortcuts about what things we think as a modeler are salient and important and drive the outcomes that we care about and which things don't, and therefore we don't need to pay a whole lot of attention to capturing them well in our models. And what's those a, choices... What's an, what's an example of, 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 of one of those? Yeah, like, great, great something, question. So, something you screen out. Yeah, so as an example, a lot of older generation electricity system planning models were built around planning the right mix of thermal power plants. So how much coal and gas right. and nuclear do I want? And if you're modeling that, the main thing you care about is the trade-off between the fixed cost or upfront cost of the power plant and the variable or fuel cost of the power plant. Right. Because you want technologies like nuclear that have a high upfront cost, but no fuel cost or low fuel cost to run all the time. Right. And you want technologies like a gas plant to run kind of in the middle and an open cycle turbine with you know low efficiency, but low fixed cost to run only as a peaking power plant. And so you can sort of take a very simple trade-off between fixed cost and variable cost and compare that to the different levels of demand throughout a year and pretty accurately determine the right mix of those technologies. Because you don't really care about the temporal nature of the variation in demand, you don't because they're all pretty flexible. You know, they can all turn on when you need them, and you don't really care about how you know the sort of what happens from hour to hour. Right. So but, in a in a in a world of in, of of one hundred percent dispatchable power, timing doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Doesn't matter exactly. So it was abstracted. So generator like the models literally didn't care about what happened from hour to hour. They just took these different levels of demand. They ranked them from highest to lowest in what's called a load duration curve right. or um, you know load blocks. And then they compared that to these fixed and variable costs. And you can actually solve it by hand. I actually gave a lecture today in my class on how to solve this by hand. <laughs> it's like very <laughs> simple math. And that's great. You can only be on a simple model that accurately captures the questions you cared about. Well, now add wind and solar to the mix. And now you have technologies that are very weather dependent and location dependent. The other thing you didn't care much about with thermal power plants is location because you right. can build them wherever you want. And so you add renewables to the mix, uh, and now where you build it matters because it changes the quality of the resource and the timing of when the wind and solar are available. And the temporal details matter because the wind and solar all produce at different times and they ramp up and down really quickly and you have to have enough flexibility and variation in your resources to deal with that. And so then that led to am a I, whole Am I wrong of, that just 
complexifies the oh, yeah, hell out of, out, of, out of everything. It did. And that's what sparked like a decade of research that I, you know, it was sort of in the tail end of at MIT to figure out how to do capacity planning models that capture temporal detail and operational detail that we used to not have to care about at all. Mm. And, and that's led to a kind of difference between a lot of the state-of-the-art models that are used in the academic world now and a lot of the prior generation models that don't have that level of detail because they didn't have to, right? I mean, they were built for a different time in a different world when those details didn't matter. And so those kinds of choices can lead to really big differences in, the, in how the model represents, even if you know the perfect state of the world, how it represents that world in your abstraction. So those two, the parametric uncertainty, what is the state of the world that you're trying to capture? And what we call structural uncertainty about how the choices you've made to, to represent that world affect the outcomes of your model are both really important uh, things to keep in mind when you're when you're doing modeling and make sure that both of those are you're, you're checking your blind spots on both of those. Right. So that well, that is a good segue then into the question of what is the proper use of these things. You know, there's a there's a a longstanding criticism. And this is often directed at the International Energy Agency, who sort of produces kind of the biggest, fanciest, most important internationally recognized models of these things. And, you know, the IEA will have a, what they call a baseline scenario or kind of a central business as usual scenario. And they will often show us continuing to use enormous amounts of fossil fuels and blowing through our, our you know, climate targets. And then... And then policymakers look at these models and say, well, look, we have to keep fossil fuels around. The model says so. The model, yeah. says, we, the model says we're doing this, so we have to do this. So you get this kind of weird Ouroboros of, like, uh, of, of the model justifying the reality, which justifies the model. So, yeah. so what is the right way, A, for modelers to present these things to, to policymakers, and B, for policymakers, like, what can and can't policymakers take away from these things? So this is a, a really good example to talk about. So the both the International Energy Agency, the, the IEA, and the U.S. Energy Information Administration, confusingly the EIA, <laughs> which are the two big like you know annual reports that come out from yeah. in energy modeling world, uh, produce these annual outlooks: the World Energy Outlook and the Annual Energy Outlook from the U.S. EIA. And they both uh, produce what is basically. Uh, what they call a reference case that is basically a frozen policy scenario. So it's it's an assumption that there will be no further policy enacted ever. <laughs> right. right? And, and that's probably not what you would bet on. Like if you're going to the horse track and, or you're going right. to the lottery and you're putting your bets down, like you would not bet that that scenario is even remotely plausible, right? Because there will be more policy. Right? Unless, you contemplate, unless you contemplate the U.S. Senate, in which well, case maybe. you think, well, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, that, you know, it's, uh, it's clearly not like the most probable scenario. It's not the prediction. Right. It's a reference. And the reason they call it that is it's a reference by which we can compare what happens if we do something else, right? What happens if we enact policy A or policy B? What, you know, we extend the production tax credit or we, uh, China commits to you know, accelerate its coal plant phase out or whatever else. Um, and so it's designed to kind of create a, a static comparison point for other scenarios. Right. And yet, every year, it is inevitably interpreted by a wide portion of the you know, policy world and the you know, consuming public that this is their business as usual or more most likely prediction scenario. Right. 
And so you can sort of excuse the IEA folks and the EIA folks for, you know, and say, well, that's not what they're saying. Their model is, you know, they say this is a reference scenario. It's not my prediction. It's a scenario. And there's yeah, a difference, to, and, right? And to be clear, like every year, because we have this fight every year, yeah. every year, the sort of IEA caveat section at the beginning gets bigger it's and longer, bigger and louder and louder. They're yeah. like, please, please listen. This is not a prediction, but, but it doesn't seem to point, ever change anything. Yeah, but at some point, you might need to ask yourself if you're a modeler and your results are continually misinterpreted if maybe you need to approach the modeling a little differently. Right. Right. And so like what, what I do in my work is generally not that kind of analysis. Like we do not present a annual reference or try to predict what's going to happen over the next five years or something like that. Um, you know, with the Net Zero America study, we did create a reference scenario. We were very clear this is a frozen policy case. It looks nothing like the Net Zero scenarios. We're not saying this is business as usual. And the focus was on five different uh, net zero pathways. Right. None of which are meant to be yeah. our predictions, none of which I particularly believe are the likely outcome, right? We're probably going to be somewhere in between them. But we're designed to explore different, you know, key trade-offs and choices we could make that would lead to very different paths. So you tried to highlight basically the choice paths and and background the the baseline scenario. Exactly. The baseline scenario is just a tool you use, it's not like a result that you were. Yeah, exactly. Like the most the most useful thing we got out of that was for the next ten years, almost all five of the paths follow pretty much the same path because which is you know one of those, those there now there is a robust finding from a model right we right. introduce a bunch of different variation and uncertainty and because the cone of uncertainty like goes out as you go further in the future right it's harder to predict what's going to happen in twenty thirty right. you know than today and twenty forty than twenty thirty. Um, the near-term paths are all pretty similar. They don't have as much time for that uncertainty to propagate and get large, and they don't have a lot of. They, and you don't have a lot of time for new technologies to come into the mix. So you basically have to use what you've got, and it's just you know smaller variations in how you know how much the system changes. And so we could find with pretty high confidence that there's a set of actions that we want to take over the next decade, kind of regardless of what the future path looks like. And so that's useful information. And then the second thing we can do with the reference scenario is say, okay, what is the incremental investment that I need relative to a frozen policy world to get that done? Because right. that's your policy to-do list, mm-hmm. right? It's explicitly telling you without any further policy, none of this stuff is going to happen. And so we can sort <laughs> right. of present to policymakers, hey, look at all of these big, you know, big boxes of investment. That's how we presented it as like an area plot with all the investments in, in different size boxes. And said, you know, look at this $300 billion here and that $200 billion there of incremental investment relative to a no policy case. That's where we need policy. I can't tell you exactly what policy it is to do that. That wasn't our job with this particular study. But we can say, if you don't do anything, it's not going to happen. And so you got to think about some policy that's going to induce that investment. It could be direct spending, right? The government could just go and spend it. Or they could incentivize the private sector and consumers to spend it by giving tax credits or enacting efficiency standards or you know, other kinds of regulations, but something has to hit each of those boxes. And that's the message, right? It's, and that's why, you know, frozen policy cases are useful, but not as a, like, something that we spent any time even talking about in the report as like, you know, let's spend a lot of time explaining what the reference scenario looks like, which is what most of the annual energy outlook is doing, <laughs> or the world energy outlook is doing. Right, right. And have you, I mean, you've been presumably working uh, with the Princeton team Talking to people about this, talking mm-hmm. to, to you know, introducing <laughs> introducing it to to policymakers at various levels, yep. and so you know, just from your sort of anthropological experience, 
are they getting it? Like, is, is how's the communication going? Are they are they drawing what you want to draw from this, or I, sort of, yeah, are they I think prepared? so. <laughs> I mean, we it seems like it, um, and you know, we're trying to emphasize again, not like predictions of specific quantities of things, uh, but robust decisions, right? So decisions that look like they would be valuable under any of the features that we model. Um, what we call uh, shaping actions or things you might want to do to make the you know the more cost effective and lower you know easier scenarios more plausible, mm. um, and hedging actions or things you want to do to uh, prepare yourself in case Plan A and B fail, <laughs> because we can't really afford to fail in decarbonizing. Right, we got to get the job done, and and so all three of those can kind of come out of this sort of scenario related exercise. And they don't depend all that much on the specific modeling outcomes, right? Because you know, you, you're not trying to say we know with certainty exactly what to do. We're trying mm-hmm. to say there's three different types of actions that we can have pretty high confidence are valuable. And we need to do all of them, right? We need to do all the hedging actions, even if we think our predictions are going to come true, because they might not. Um, and when you sort of present the results that way, I think it, it it's, a, it's a better way to... Or it's a way to use the models to build intuition and an insight about what actions to take without trying to be predictive and you know prescriptive as to exactly what the right path to take is. Right. I mean this maybe this is a cynical thought but <clears throat> a lot of a lot of what you're describing as sort of the conclusions of this elaborate modeling is climate's a really bad problem. We need to move really quick. We need to deploy all the technology we have as fast as possible while we prepare future technologies as fast as possible. You know, arguably I could have told you all that before before anybody modeled anything. Is it is it is does it give you a power with policymakers? Do you think to sort of have this technical, you know, not just like here's the wisdom that we've learned from obvious experience over the last twenty years, but also we have a bunch of numbers. Like, is it helpful with policymakers to to approach well, them that way? Yeah, I mean, I think what it does is it it does clarify a few things. It clarifies the the key building blocks, right? So just mm-hmm. like we were talking about the three pieces of the electricity system: the firm resources, the fuel saving mm-hmm. resources, and the fast burst or balancing resources. Like again, the the relative mix and how you want to mix and match those is still uncertain and subject to value judgment, of course, too. Um, but what we know from the models is you can't really take any one of those pieces out entirely and expect to get the job done easily. Right, and so right. that is what models can really help you gain confidence on. It's like, you know, we had all kinds of... Like, do you need carbon capture? Do you really? Do right. you need... Uh, you know, do we have to build all that wind and solar? And do, do I really need <laughs> to like try to expand the transmission grid? Because that seems awfully challenging. Um, should I invest in hydrogen? Is that a thing we want? Like all those sorts of questions are pretty uncertain, right? And mm-hmm. and what our modeling can tell us is that yeah, there are some key building blocks here that are used to differing degrees across the scenarios that we created and the uncertainties that we explored, but all of which show up to some degree in all of them. And these are sort of what we call the key pillars of decarbonization. The idea being, if you take one of those pillars down, the temple falls over, right? And you, you can't really keep right. the, seat of the roof up anymore. So uh, again, you can mix and match those, but you need to have all of them. So that's one of the key you know, kind of takeaways. And I think that our work, you know, and the kind of other experimental work that I've done in my in my research helps clarify those sorts of you know uh, pieces of the puzzle. And and that's really helpful because it can say like, look, we know we're going to need carbon capture at scale. How much? Not sure. But we can't ignore this technology right, entirely. Right, and we right, know right. we're going to need zero carbon fuels from biomass and hydrogen. And we, don't, again, don't know exactly how much, but we better get started on improving those technologies because they're not ready at the scale we want today. 
Uh, and those messages, I think, are resonating and getting clear. You know, we are, are, are coming through to policymakers and industry stakeholders clearly from the work. The other thing that the work, I think, is really revealing and, and was sort of the whole hypothesis for the Net Zero America study to begin with is that there has been a lot of high-level energy system modeling, right, for years. Mm-hmm. The International Energy Agency, the IPCC assessments, all of the, mm-hmm. inter, you know, the uh, Electricity Modeling Forum and the integrated assessment models that they uh, look at, you know, have been looking at decarbonization pathways for a long time. And that's been really helpful to get some of these, you know, points of consensus down and clarity at a high level. But as we've moved from questions of, you know, can we even build this system? Like, is it just from an engineering perspective, won't the lights go off if we try to have more right, than 10 or right. 20 or 15% win? Like, you remember those days. Yes, um, that's pretty settled now, right? I yeah, mean, that's can we settled. just call and, that settled? It's settled and we used models to understand that before we went and tested our grid and saw whether it would <laughs> right. break, right? And then we went and did test it and it didn't break and, you know, we, we know we can do it. So that we moved past those sort of technical questions and models helped a lot in understanding that because we could build these operational right. models and run experiments without actually risking blackouts, right? And then that moved, I think, into an era that probably was really prominent in the Waxman Markey days and thereafter of, well, how much is it going to cost and who's going to, you know, like who's going to bear that cost and can we really reafford it? And in 2009, I think that question was really open. Like, could we really afford it? Mm-hmm. And it was sort of how much do you count on innovation in the future to keep dropping the costs? And you had people saying, well, why don't we just invest in the innovation first? And people saying, no, we need to just, you know, deploy, deploy, deploy. And then people like me saying, let's do both. And, you know, it's, it was a, <laughs> you know, it was a, a heady time. And uh, a lot of that and was settled by models both, too. It turns out both was the yeah. right answer to literally all, right, all, right. The, <laughs> all the questions you just reviewed. <laughs> all the, the answer to every one of them is both exactly. and yes, both always. And yes. Uh, but then, so now we're in a world where I think the models are increasingly saying this is affordable. And so mm. what, what we're, and, and we're seeing governments commit to net zero emissions, right? I mean, I wouldn't even thought that was possible. 100% carbon-free grids are the law in multiple states and yeah, multiple kids, countries. Yeah, kids right? these like, days don't understand what a wild thing that is. I mean, so just go back to the beginning of my introduction. Like uh, when I worked in 2007 on the Oregon Renewable Energy Act, which was ancient history of 13 years ago, right? 14 years ago. <laughs> The law was to get to 25% renewable electricity by 2025 in a green state like Oregon, right? Now we're talking about 100% carbon-free electricity by sometime between 2035 and 2050, right? Across the whole country. And, you know, that's just a whole different conversation. And that, that has changed because the technology changed. And so now we can answer with confidence, yeah, we can do this without breaking the bank. And so the question now, I think, is, all right, if we're going to do this, what is it going to look like? And who's going to bear the cost and who's going to benefit? And what does this look like for real people, like in their backyards, mm-hmm. for real constituencies, real industries, you know, for the air that I breathe and my kids breathe, for the sector that employs my you know, wife or husband, for the business interests that I have in my company. Um, and those require more granular guidance than the kind of high-level modeling results that right. we've often seen at a kind of an aggregate scale. Like so much of the models are like, this is what is the lowest cost solution, or this is what maximizes social welfare. And those are admirable things to know. But I have yet to have a conversation with a politician who has asked me, what is the social welfare maximizing solution? <laughs> yeah. Look back on from a century, you know, in a century, what will have maximized yeah. utility? That's they want to know what's good for their constituents, right? That's their job. And so I think as modelers who are working in this space, the, the shift that's happening now is we need to get better at providing decision support, because that's ultimately what we're trying to do with these models, to support better decision-making that is, uh, that is more granular, 
more salient at a human scale and focuses not just on cost, but on a whole range of outcomes that people care about. Jobs and air pollution and what physical infrastructure they have to look at and contend with the construction of in their backyards and, you know, and, and what it means for land use and conservation and, you know, all, all kinds of things that are more, uh, that are also important and will dictate the politics and the decision making that we take about which path to go down. And so what we did with the Net Zero America study was try to focus on those questions. The, the high level modeling was the first like six months of the project. Mm. And then the rest of the work was to go from the kind of bar charts and, and area plots that you typically see to as granular and detailed an understanding sector by sector, state or by state or county by county of what the infrastructure was going to look like across the country under these different pathways, how it varied if we took different forks in the road and what the benefits and costs associated with that were. So land use impacts, employment at a state level and a sectoral level, uh, air pollution benefits. And that level of granularity, I think, has really resonated with a lot of people because they can start to see, like, what does this really mean for me, for my industry, right. for my constituents? And I think that's where modeling in this space is going. And that's like, that's the next step is to try to figure out, you know, a range of tools that are going to help us explore and illuminate a whole range of important trade offs around equity right. and concentration of benefits with, you know, and employment transitions and, Air quality benefits um, and all kinds of things like that that have typically not been the core focus of a of a model. And you know, I say that as a person who does cost optimization models, like that's my <laughs> that's my trade. But I think we have to start to you know, if cost is not the primary differentiator anymore between right. these pathways, it's all the other stuff that is. And and that's what we have to get better at trying to quantify and find clever ways to make visceral and communicate them to people. And to make those trade-offs more apparent. And, and those are the conversations that have really been interesting with the Net Zero America study because they've started to really reveal these sorts of trade-offs. I, I want to get back to a couple of trade-offs in just a second. But just kind of as a side question, it occurs to me that one of the families of entities that do a lot of energy modeling and planning with their models are utilities. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, there's a lot of, you and I know, there's a lot of complaining <laughs> out there in the world about how utilities... Uh, model things and plan things. Are you, is the kind of modeling you do useful to utilities? And have you talked with utilities about trying to integrate some of this? Yeah, I mean, so you know, going back to my renewable Northwest days, I mean, that was my first exposure to these sorts of models. Was as a public intervener in in regulatory proceedings where the utility oh, right. would come forward with their model and it says we ran these five scenarios and this is the lowest cost, least risk plan and right. and we want you to approve our seven coal plants that Pacific Core <laughs> wants to build in two thousand seven. That was the actual docket. Oh my God. And, you know, we raised some questions about that set of assumptions. Like, you know, have you <laughs> thought about whether Congress might enact climate policy at some point in the next 40 years <laughs> when that power plant is going to operate? And is that really a lowest cost strategy uh, for customers? And did you model a scenario in which wind got cheaper <laughs> and isn't as expensive as it is today? Uh, you know, these sorts of questions. And we were able to kind of push them. But and in that process, the model was a black box, it was a proprietary yeah. tool. It, it, you know, there was a whole army of, of integrated resource planners, they're called at the utility that ran the model. And then all we could do as interviewers was basically, you know, take a look at their assumptions and poke and prod and ask the regulatory staff to require them to run some different cases or to consider some other, uh, you know, potential risks that they didn't look at. And sometimes that works. Like in Oregon, we had a pretty open-minded utility commission and they listened to our arguments and, and we won. They said, you know what? 
seven new coal plants in 2007 is probably not a good idea. <laughs> and luckily, they didn't approve that plan. And they went back to the drawing board. And now Pacific Core is retiring as many coal plants as they can. And Yeah, and Oregon <laughs> has uh, zero coal yeah, they got uh, rid in, their law, last, in law. Yep, they got rid of They're getting rid of the last one in Boardman soon. Um, so, you know, th- those processes, we were successful even despite the lack of transparency. But in many other states... It is used. That lack of transparency is sort of used by the commission, by the utilities, to block out interveners and to to sort of use their authority to say, "Look, we know what's best, and we have the tools, and you don't." And and so you, the tr- commission has to trust us. And you know, in some states, like my my uh, my uncle's a, a energy lawyer in in the southeast. I won't say which state to protect his innocence. Um, <laughs> and you know, the utility commissions there don't even allow for discovery. There's no discovery process, so you can't, as a lawyer, ask the utility ask the, the utility to produce documents about how they came up with their model assumptions or anything like that. <laughs> you, liter- you, you literally, you literally just, just have to accept the. Uh, yeah. you, have you can to ask have to them questions, they say. not under oath, for one day. That's the process, as I understand <laughs> it. So, you know, Hilarious. there's a whole range of transparency, and some of that just comes down to what the regulators decide they want to do. But what a lot of people have been pushing for, as you know, utility as as um, academic models have gotten better and better. And more and more open source tools are available. Is to say, well, why should we even allow the utility to use a proprietary yeah. model? I wondered the um, same thing myself. And you know, and that is a new thing. Like there weren't alternatives in 2007 that you could use really from a you know a non-proprietary context. But now there are. And commissions like in California require the use of an open source model like Resolve, which came out of Berkeley's Switch model. Interesting. Um, and is now run by E3. And so, you know, on behalf of the commission, they have an open source version of that model that you can download and you can change the assumptions and you can run it if you have the software, you know, the computing power. Uh, and you can at least understand what it's doing and what assumptions mm-hmm. it's making if you want to. So uh, is, there, is there a world in which, I mean, maybe this is too utopian, but is there a world in which there's some sort of standardization across modeling tools across the country's utilities. So there's like some fungibility of, of assumptions and, you know, so you can sort of compare across, across these things. Is that even I mean, that would be maybe an ideal. I, I, I would imagine <laughs> that's probably not where we can get anytime soon. But uh, that, I mean, the sort of that's what I'm trying to do with Power Genome and, and our GenX model, which we're making open source uh, with MIT in a couple of weeks, is, you know, Bring down the barriers for that. We're going to create an open source data platform that makes it easy to take federal, you know, data from FERC and the EPA and and DOE and others, and compile all the inputs you would need to run a model for any part of the continental United States. And we're going to give you an open source model developed at MIT and Princeton that uses all the best fancy new techniques for free. <laughs> and we'll I'm going to try to keep a staff person funded to support people who want to use that model or contribute code to it so that it can grow and get better over time. Mm-hmm. And the last little piece of the puzzle is that these models tend to require uh, expensive proprietary solvers to do all the math that is required to crunch the numbers and solve the big massive algebraic problem that it puts together. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to figure out a way to bring that barrier down for non-academics who can't get a free research license the way we do for those software. Um, but you know, if you can bring those barriers down, if say you know Google wanted to create a cloud computing solver that was available for use for nonprofits oh, or yeah. something, just an idea, Google. Um, <laughs> we'll be calling you next week. Uh, <laughs> there, you know, there's there's a, I think a, a near term possibility that we could actually bring down all those barriers for you know not 
the average person, right? Because they're not going to take the time to learn how to use the model. But the person like me at Renewable Northwest in 2007, who was a full-time, you know, wonk at a advocacy group who could have learned, taken the time to learn how to use this model. And instead of having to just take the utility's word for it, I could have ran my own cases and brought them to commission and said, look, right. you should consider this. It's run with so the same empowering. model that the utility uses and it's using the same transparent assumptions. I just changed right. assumption A, B, and C. And look, it, it revealed a totally different pathway you have to consider. Right. So you're empowering future Jesse's here. That's to, the goal, to, right? To to be be go back in time. And, and, and I, <laughs> I'm inspired uh, in this front, I should say, by Matthias Fripp at University of Hawaii, who was one of the original developers of the Switch model at Berkeley. And then took it to Hawaii and has been very effective in engage, using that tool to engage with Hawaii Electric and the Utility Commission there to push them you know, to consider different paths and to get on a path to 100% renewable electricity uh, that has been very effective at you know, opening up the regulatory proceedings there to a different set of insights than those that the utility was originally producing and the Resolve model in California as well. So there's examples of this happening. And I think it should be the standard. You don't have to use the same model and the same inputs, but you should be using for public regulatory proceedings and policy analysis. You sh- I think you should be using a public source, mo- you know, open source model that is available to interveners and the public should they want to spend the time to to get to use it. Right. So um, maybe just uh, one final sort of subject area we c- we can cover before we're done. You know, one of the things I have complained about in the past. And you've written about in the past is is this sort of phenomenon where um, you know economists or someone will model do some pol- policy modeling and and then take the results of the policy modeling and insist that whatever the optimum policy solution that the model spit out is the right one yep. to advocate for politically. And they, you know, as, as we know, economists, uh, God bless them, tend to be somewhat maybe politically naive and not super savvy about politics and they end up sort of driving us into a political hole where we're forced <laughs> if we want the economist you, you know seal of approval to advocate for policies that are political poison that that never get passed and so you, you know and, and so you and I have talked before about how what's the is there a way of integrating political type considerations, political knowledge, political economy into the modeling itself? Or is that just kind of something that you apply once you've got your results in your hand and you're trying to figure out how to use them? That's a great question. So both, yes, you can try to do both. Um, So there are efforts to try to capture institutional priorities and political constraints. And I'll, I'll shout out a couple of friends in this space, Wei Peng at uh, Penn State and Michael Davidson at University of California, San Diego, who have focused on these sorts of questions. Like how do I... So Michael was focused in his PhD research on why China's power system sees such high levels of wind curtailment. They have a lot of mm. wind power in China. And given the penetration level that they have relative to other parts of the world, had an enormous amount of wind curtailment where they're just wasting wind power because they can't get the power from the wind farms to where it needs to go. And he was trying to... It was a transmission thing, wasn't it? Well, so that was one of the ideas. Is it transmission? Is it it market rules? Is it, you know, just... uh, You know, is it that they have a bunch of coal and the coal is inflexible? And so what he did was he built an engineering economic model like the kinds that I use as well that captured just sort of like what we would expect to happen if it was just physics and economics. Mm. And then he started layering in other stuff. Like he went to China and he interviewed a whole sorts of people 
uh, and understood how do they actually dispatch their system and what oh, are they really prioritizing and how do they allocate rights to coal plants and to transmission lines and what impact does their um, use of combined heat and power in the north, for, you know, where their coal plants are actually there to produce heat and just a little bit of electricity, you know, how does that impact things? And you can start to create a model where you throw these pieces in and you can start to see that the politics and the institutions actually drive a huge amount of the behavior, no surprise. And then you can start to say, well, what changes to those priorities might make a difference? And, and you can present those options to policymakers and say, well, look, you know, you're currently doing it this way. Well, I understand you have some rationale and reason for that. Here's the cost of doing it a different way that maybe still achieves your priorities, but can save a lot of money or can reduce emissions or can achieve other priorities. So, you know, you can actually show them, like, if you change your decision, I can show you in the model what would happen. So, so you're not asking them to abandon their priorities. You're, no, you're but you're giving them maybe a, them. a clarity about what the cost of that priority right. is, and a set. You can actually model different choices in you know in different institutional decisions and how that might change things. So that the idea is to like put the politics and the institutions in the model, so that right. you can run scenarios and say how does that affect the outcomes. So that's one branch of work, and I think it's a really interesting and important space. And you know, Michael has a joint appointment at the Global Policy School and the mechanical and aerospace engineering department so that he can bridge those two worlds. And that's really, I think, really cool. The other, and Wei, Wei does that uh, very similar kind of work at, at Penn State with uh, more with integrated assessment type models or energy economic models and political economy. The other way to do it, and, and there are two folks on my team at Princeton, um, uh, Aaron Mayfield and Neha Patankar, who uh, take a different approach to it, which is to say, let's use the model to not try to capture the decision makers' priorities or the politics but to generate outcomes that they care about and present them with a range of options that can inform their decision-making along a number of axes besides just economic efficiency and cost. And so there are different approaches to doing that. Um, there are what's known as multi-objective optimization, where you're actually trying to explore this sort of trade-off frontier between two different priorities or more than two different priorities. Uh, and so you can say, well, what if I care about economic employment impacts of shale gas extraction because I'm a politician from Pennsylvania, for example. But I also care about air pollution, right? Because that matters to my constituencies too. What is the trade-off frontier between air pollution and employment, which was Aaron's uh, thesis research, um, where you can actually look, like, is there a Pareto frontier or a space where I can get a lot of benefit in air pollution without sacrificing much employment or vice versa? And that, you know, politicians care, right? Because then you can tell them, look, I can give you, I can get, you can get 90% as much jobs and save 50% of the air pollution, maybe, right. you know, just as an example. And so you can, you don't try to tell them what their priorities are, but you can inform them along multiple axes that they care about and help them identify trade-offs that are better on multiple fronts, even if you sacrifice a little bit on one to gain a lot on the other. And the other thing that we're doing a lot of in our group that Neha has been a, a, a real uh, force in the research on is um, what, we know, what we call modeling to generate alternatives. So the idea is that we're not trying to find the optimal solution, but we're trying to reveal a whole bunch of different solutions that all have a pretty similar cost. So they're not, you know, we're not trying to just say that, well, this one's really expensive. And uh, but we're saying, okay, what if they cost five or 10% more than the lowest cost scenario? How much flexibility do we have in that space? How many different solutions can I create that all have a pretty similar cost? So that you're not going to break the bank if you choose one of them, but have maybe very different outcomes on a number of other metrics, like land use considerations in the American West, which is a paper we're about to submit uh, shortly, where we're trying to say, well, look, we have to build a lot of wind and solar potentially to decarbonize all the Western power sta- you know, grids. 
where can we, how much flexibility do we have to choose where to build the wind and solar and what types mm-hmm. of lands are impacted and which states? And, you know, what are the employment implications of that? Because the jobs go where the infrastructure is. And we can generate a whole bunch of different solutions that all cost about the same, but maybe have very different impacts on uh, visual impacts from wind or on uh, land use or on revenue for farmers or on employment. And the goal isn't to say which of those is best, but to use the models to generate a range of choices that we can then rank and explore on a bunch of different important outcomes that people care about and present a wider menu of options. It's still quantitative, right? It's still rigorous Mm -hmm. modeling work. We're trying to quantify key outcomes but we don't make an assumption up front about what the consumer of the knowledge cares about. We just you know, right. try to provide a range of options and let them pick because it's all going to be subjective. And you can, I imagine you can pretty frequently show a politician, because just my impression is that a lot of politicians, especially in more conservative areas, I mean, there are trade-offs, but I think they have maybe an inflated sense of the trade-offs, mm-hmm. an inflated often. sense of, of that they have to make hard choices that they don't necessarily have to make yeah. and that they often can get their employment or, or other goals met and advance on, on, on clean energy and, yep. and climate change and stuff like that. Is, uh, yeah, I feel like the general state of knowledge exaggerates the severity of these trade-offs. That's exactly right. And that's what we can use models to to help do too, is to to quantify and illuminate those trade-offs. And sometimes they are severe, right? Sometimes there really are, you know, big choices that we have to make about path A or path B. But sometimes the trade-offs are pretty gradual and you can gain a lot of benefit along one axis without sacrificing much on another. You know, as another example of work we're doing right now, we're looking at uh, what happens if we increase wages paid to people in the wind and solar sector? Oh, yeah, right. right? There's a big assumption that you know, if we pay people more yeah. to install or produce, you know, wind turbines and and solar panels, that that'll raise the cost of the clean energy transition and slow the benefits, and and that there's this tension between you know affordable clean energy and you know higher right. labor standards and good jobs, or domestic manufacturing content, right? Don't we need to just import the cheap solar panels from China or Malaysia because that's going to slow down, the, you know, and raise the cost and slow progress if we make them in the U.S.? So we're trying to look quantitatively to exactly that question, and it turns out that. You know, because labor is not a big piece of the cost of at least utility scale solar and wind farms, that you can afford to pay a lot more without impacting the total system cost all that much. And so, yeah, we'll pay maybe a little bit more for wind and solar, but in exchange, we will get more, you know, higher paying jobs and more, uh, more domestic manufacturing potentially if we want to promote that with policy. Uh, and so there's the trade-off, and we can quantify what that looks like, and say, is it worth it to us to pay a few percent more for solar or wind, to have to pay, you know, workers twenty thousand dollars a year more in the sectors that you know are employed, and 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 those kinds of you know trade-offs, you know, the, the trade-off is real, it exists, but the magnitude of the trade-off is often exaggerated, or at least not fully understood until you uh, develop models that can help us understand them. Yeah, and and you know, on a similar way of sort of trying to integrate these maybe less tangible or less quantifiable priorities, you know, there's things like justice. We had a great question on, on Twitter, sort of, you can look at the results of a model and sort of intuit, you know, like which ones better serve environmental justice. But, you know, again, I come back to the question of like, can you, is that integrate integratable <laughs> you know yeah. and, and and you could go down a list of these sort of intangibles like sort of nimby sentiment like mm-hmm. people don't want the land near them 
changed. <laughs> that seems to be an irreducible uh, tendency of human beings. Is that a thing you can quantify and put in a model? Like, I just at a certain point, I just feel like you're going to like run into computing power problems yeah, if you're trying well, to get everything in. But yeah. but are these things tractable that you can? Work them in. Yeah, so the, that's those are exactly the kinds of questions that we're so so much more focused on now in our in my research group and and at Princeton, um, and you know we just sort of scratched the surface with the with the Net Zero America study, and and you know you can't really answer those questions until you get down to a level of geospatial granularity that you you know that we haven't had before. Like we're we're now like we're now looking at siting wind and solar facilities at like four square kilometer. Uh, areas or four four mm. kilometer by four kilometer, you know, cu- you know, boxes across the whole landscape, and we know what the is land it, cover is. Type that just is computing? And, is that just computing power that it, has enabled that? So it's a it's a combination of computing power and a little bit of more creative thinking about how to use the models. So mm. we have been trying to combine. Um, basically, we take the, we take a detailed geospatial analysis on the front end of all the different places that you could build, and we construct um, cost estimates associated with building in different places. And then we cluster those up to a kind of higher level of aggregation that makes it more tractable in the model. But we retain the linkage between the detailed level and the and the abstract level or the clustered level. Then we run the model and the model decides I want to build at these places. And we can even run the modeling to generate alternatives approach where we don't just get one solution, we get a hundred, all of which deploy different, you know, different combinations of sites. And then when on the back end we can write you know, software that will take and unpack the clustered level results back down to the detailed level and automatically map all of the sites that are chosen to be built in that ex- that example. And so we get a sense of these are the places where it is really costly to not build wind and solar. Like these are the really good wind and solar sites that you just kind of have to build in if you want the cost to be affordable. But all these other sites, you've got a lot of flexibility. And so maybe if it's you know too much local opposition, you don't build that. Or maybe if you're trying to concentrate employment benefits in places with coal plant closures, you build more over here, you know, instead of over there. And all of those sorts of aspects can be quantified if you're able to create a a range of alternatives with your model, and then b quantify at a very local scale what's happening. And another example is Aaron Mayfield has worked out an analysis of of coal plant retirements and uh, thermal power plant retirements across the country, so coal and nuclear and gas plants. And of those sites, which uh, have the greatest air pollution benefit right. and on different demographics, right? So mm. because you're talking about a very specific location, you can say at a county or right. a finer level, who lives there and are they you know, people of color? Or are they low income? Are they high income? And then you can also look at what opportunities there are for repowering those facilities as clean thermal power plants, right? As a new nuclear power plant or a new uh, gas plant with carbon capture or uh, a hydrogen combustion turbine that could have just transition implications for the em- people who are employed in the power plant that's, re- that's retiring, right? So rather than make them go get a job in another sector in another state, can we create new jobs that are right in the same town at the same site? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so those are all kinds of different questions that might change the priority or weight that you place on which power plants to shut down first and then what to do with mm. those sites. And yeah, you can quantify all that stuff with enough effort and time. And, and, and that's what's really fun about this space is you can start to really get into those important salient trade-offs when you get down to the facility level and the, you know, the site level. Um, and it just requires a little more care in you know, sort of getting your data in a row at the beginning and then finding a way to represent them in the model that is tractable and then coming back down to a local scale uh, on the back end of the model that can help us quantify these these salient you know political 
politically salient local kind of impacts. Right. Okay. Well, I've kept you longer than I said I would. So I'm going to have <laughs> one final, <laughs> this is, I promised the final question. <laughs> okay. um, you know, Texas happened. Uh, <laughs> everybody, I doubt anyone will have forgotten by the time this airs, but Texas just froze and 30 gigawatts of its energy generation went offline and there were rolling blackouts yeah. and or not so rolling for a lot of not people. so rolling blackouts and people were burning their back fences to boil water to yeah <laughs> to, it was it got real ugly there in Texas for a while and this of course has raised a couple of questions so when it comes to modeling I have sort of a, a kind of a specific question and a more general question the specific question is should this change how firm we think natural gas is right because we've been sort of treating it as a stable, you know, dispatchable backup source in all the models, mm-hmm. and it and it just wasn't <laughs> in the, in this case. It was not stable, and it did not come to anyone's rescue as backup. And 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 more broadly, the question it, this te- Texas raises the question of resilience, you know, and redundancy, and sort of backup systems rather than sort of kind of optimizing your grid. How can you make it so that it's robust against stuff going wrong? And so I'm just curious how the models, if they do, can quantify or integrate resilience considerations. That was a cheat, yeah. those two questions, but I promised they're the last <laughs> ones. Yeah. So on the how firm is gas, I do think that is the key, one of the key takeaways from this the experience in Texas is that if we're going to count on a fuel or a resource type to be dependable and be firm and there when we need it, and it fails us, that's when catastrophic outcomes happen, right? <laughs> if a technology like wind and solar we know is unreliable and variable, doesn't materialize, the system can survive that because we planned on it, right? I, I said in my New York Times op-ed that there, you know, wind and solar are reliably unreliable. Right. It's not like it is a shock to system operators that there's, there's this thing called nighttime. Right, <laughs> or that wind farms sometimes don't produce much power at all for a couple right. of days. Like we know that, and so we plan our system for that. But what we do plan on is nuclear and coal and gas and these resources to be firm and be dependable. And so when they're not, that's really problematic. And I do think it raises real questions about how firm those technologies are and what steps need to be taken to make sure they are firm. And so you know, in other parts of the world, obviously, like there are gas plants in Alberta. And wind farms in Antarctica, like we, you know, there's literally a wind turbines operating in an Antarctic research base. So, like, it's not like we can't make these technologies resilient to the weather, uh, but it does cost more. And so, we have to, you know, I think think more carefully about what kinds of extreme events um, can not just bring down a power plant because that's not that problematic if the you know failures are not correlated with one another, uh, but bring down a whole bunch of them at once. You know, so. Uh, those are the kinds of events, the correlated failures that um, you know break our systems and push them past their resilience points. And you know they may not happen very frequently, but if they do, and they're as devastating as they were in Texas, where dozens of lives were lost and tens of billions of dollars were spent just on the electricity that was supplied alone in a, in a five day period, let alone all the costs of frozen pipes and you know and and damaged buildings and everything else that, that occurred. Uh, you know, it's worth spending up front a little bit more on an average basis to probably to avoid those sorts of events. Um, so I think that's the first implication. And the second is, yeah, there is a role for modeling, I think, in trying to better understand what these correlated failures look like. 
and what steps can be taken, A, to kind of harden the system so that we push back the point of failure a bit further. But equally important, um, and this is an area that you know resilience researchers emphasize a lot, um, is how do we respond when the system does fail? Right. So I've been working with uh, Sarah Fletcher, who was an MIT classmate of mine, is now a professor at Stanford University in civil environmental engineering on a piece to, to sort of think about implications of, of, for resilience. And she's emphasized, uh, importantly, that it's not just the failure of the infrastructure system that causes human impacts. It's how vulnerable people are to those failures. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of things that we could do to prepare ourselves and our societies and our communities to be able to weather the storm when it does come, because we're never going to have a 100% reliable system. Right. And so, you know, the plans to get water distributed to people when there's a boil order on, so people aren't left on their own. Plans to get homeless people off the street and into shelters so that they're not vulnerable to the weather. Because even if they, you know, there is power in the homes, if they're not inside, they're not protected. You know, and so the, the most vulnerable populations are those that are most vulnerable to to uh, these extreme disasters as well. And so, how do we um, prepare for that and implement plans that can go into effect, you know, uh, quickly and uh, effectively when disaster strikes? And and you know that can cost money too, but it can save lives and it can save a lot of human suffering. Uh, and often is more cost effective than the physical hardening. I mean, we don't want to do some amount of that, but mm, there's going to be some things right. that we just can't. Like, you're not going to rip out the entire natural gas pipeline system in, you know, in, right. in Texas and bury it ten feet deeper to like be more insulated. It's just this one random, you know, example of something you could do. But you, you know, so some of the things we can do are cost effective to harden the infrastructure. But a lot of things we have to do are think more carefully about what happens when the system fails and how do we mitigate and minimize the harm. And as the climate changes and these extreme events get more common, um, that's going to be you know, more and more important to have those plans ready and to have them drilled and effective and, and, uh, and, not, and not just leave people on their own to, you know, without gro- groceries in a frozen house, without you know, water for five days, which is what happened to a lot of people in Texas. All right. All right, uh, Jesse, thanks for uh, coming on, taking all this time. It's been a, a pleasure. It's been a pleasure watching you uh, succeed from over here on the sidelines. And I'm uh, uh, thrilled that you are where you are. If nothing else, it's an endless supply of PDFs. For- <laughs> I aim to provide PDFs forever. It's <laughs> for a resource for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, entirely reliable. Okay, thanks. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks, Dave. All right. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, Volts is a 100% independent operation supported entirely by reader subscriptions. So thank you to everyone who has subscribed. You are making this work possible. Uh, today's episode received production, crucial production help from the team at Important Not Important, a newsletter that brings you the latest from the world of science, everything from the day's news to deep dives on uh, the scientific topics of interest, so you can get a generalist's view of how the science world is changing and how to take action. Uh, it's a great newsletter. I appreciate their help. You should check it out and subscribe. Uh, So thanks again, everybody, and I will see you next time.